Access a new level of reliable and accurate voyage data. Predictive Fleet Analytics from Lloyd's List Intelligence saves you time, money and resource by enabling you to accurately track vessels, predict vessel movements and anticipate port congestion and delays in minutes. Predictive Fleet Analytics combines machine learning with our trusted foundational data to bring instant clarity and help you make better decisions. Our analytics will help you better predict a vessel's next move with estimated time of arrival at destination ports, estimated time to berth, estimated time of departure, and port turnaround times, all on one platform, tailored to your specific requirements. Navigate uncertainty and disruption from changing trade lanes and shifting supply chains with Predictive Fleet Analytics from Lloyd's List Intelligence. For more information and to book a trial, visit lloydslistintelligence.com or follow the link in the podcast description. Twenty-seven was the magic number in the end. That was how many attacks the Houthis landed on international shipping before the inevitable military response was triggered. On January the 12th, America and Britain responded with more than 60 sea and air attacks on Houthi targets in Yemen in an attempt to restore open passage, expanding the scope of the Middle East conflict in the process. As we record this on Friday, we're inserting the significant but inevitable caveat that by the time you listen to this, details will have changed. The risk assessments that were being conducted day by day are now being reassessed on an hour-to-hour timeline. We don't yet know what the Houthi and the Iranian response is going to look like, but we do know that the Western coalition is not about to let this one drop. President Joe Biden threatened further military action and said America would not allow hostile actors to imperil the freedom of navigation in one of the world's most critical commercial routes. The immediate impact is clear. We've already seen the box ships diverting around the Cape of Good Hope, but in the aftermath of the airstrikes on Yemen, we're seeing an increasing amount of tankers and dry bulk carriers follow suit. Now, that matters. It matters in terms of the immediate market implications, but it also matters on a wider geopolitical level. The vulnerability of supply chains to shocks is well understood within the industry, but just how much protection can navies really offer to shipping today? That is a big question. Today we're looking at the Red Sea, but what about the Taiwan Strait? What about the Black Sea? What about the Arctic? Freedom to trade is not a given, and the naval response to this latest threat is being carefully watched. But let's start with a quick update on what's happening with our principal analyst, Michelle Vizibachman. Michelle, um, we're recording this on Friday the 12th, having already recorded analysis that was out of date before it even aired. Now, this is obviously a fast-moving situation, but give us your take on what this latest twist in the Red Sea security saga tells us. Well, at the time of recording, I've just received a notification from Intertanko, which represents the world's independent tanker operators, recommending that they pause all transits in the area until daylight on Saturday. We have recommendations from maritime security companies for them to avoid the area for three days. Everything is in wait and see mode, and I guess it, what what happens next will depend on how the Houthis or if the Houthis retaliate. I think the message they're giving so far is that there will be one. 
what I would like to observe, though, is that there has been a lot of febrile commentary about how this is going to impact world inflation, oil prices are rising. And I think I just want to inject a dose of reality. We've seen week on week Red Sea vessel transits fall by 9%, year on year by 26%. Yes, big container ships aren't going through. And yes, traffic has been paused. But we are seeing the large bulk of of international shipping continue to use the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. Um, Freight rates for container ships, yes, they have doubled, but we have to remember that we have spare capacity for uh, oil oil freight rates. There has been a spike, but they were already um, increasing anyway. For bulk shipping, there has been more or less um, uninterrupted shipment and no direct Um, increase in rates. Freight rates are a very small component of the overall price. We don't see congested ports and and manufacturing interruptions from the pandemic. So yes, this is the biggest uh, uh, issue to face commercial shipping since the tanker wars of the 1980s. But, you know, let's just hold on. and, And even though it's hour by hour and not day by day anymore, with the caveat that by the time you listen to this podcast, this could all be redundant. But if it's not, let's just um, bring a little bit of reality into the the situation. I think it's a very valid point. And, you know, as the voice of shipping, I think, you know, it is incumbent on us to, you know, make sure that we are being realistic in this assessment. And as you say, we're not downplaying the risk. This is a clear and present danger to the whole of shipping. But the container ships have already diverted. This is not going to impact them in any way, shape, or form. We're already watching that disruption play out. And as you point out, there is overcapacity there to be soaked up. So it'll cost more, it'll take longer, but shipping will adapt. Tankers, that's a very different calculation, of course. You know, there are fewer uh, available ships on the water, and it's a very different market. And it could be potentially catastrophic if we do see a genuine blockade of the Red Sea. But as you point out, we're not there yet. All bets are off, of course, if uh, if, if we see a, a regional uh, conflict escalate into a slightly wider conflict. But as it stands now, I think we do need a dose of reality in terms of the implications. We've only seen a 26% drop in terms of the actual traffic. Um, of course, you know, we may be proven wrong on this. But I mean, what, what what's your sort of feeling in terms of how you know, a a mid to worst case scenario looks in terms of the implications here. Okay, well, let's go back to the pandemic. When the whole world shut down, what kept on going? Shipping. So another reality check. Um, I can't think of a a more worst case scenario than a pandemic um, at the moment or anything on par with the pandemic um, at the moment, of course. But we do have to realise that a shutdown of the Red Sea and the Suez Canal is not like a shutdown of the Strait of Hormuz through which about 20% of the oil, the world's oil goes through and through which there is no diversion because the pipelines don't have the capacity to take all the oil. We're talking about a scenario where there are diversions and there are workarounds. So once again, we have seen a blip in the oil price. I think it was up at 4%. We're talking at 15.30 GMT. Um, that's likely sentiment-driven because the supply and demand fundamentals for the oil industry at the moment aren't too fantastic because of what's happening in the global economy. So 
I'm not saying that the scenarios that are being painted by economists about the impact this could have on on global inflation are uh, over-egged, but I'm just saying, hang on a sec, let's just step back a little bit and be a little bit realistic because global shipping, you know, it it was the only industry that really um, was uh, proofed from the pandemic and, and continued and maybe... You know, we are getting a little bit overblown in in talking about the impact any interruption should have. Now, as I say, I would ordinarily be aiming to offer you analysis with some shelf life, but I'm going to have to direct you, dear listeners, to LloydsList.com for the most up-to-the-minute insights on this one. And in the meantime, let's take a wider look at some of this away from the breaking news. Because... While the navies uh, have largely been playing a defensive strategy since before Christmas, the likelihood of airstrikes have been looking increasingly inevitable for a few weeks now. This evolution of the Houthi tactics have been worrying everybody, and not just in terms of the immediate threat they represent to ships and crew. The Houthis were testing the naval defences, and they knew only too well that there is a finite amount of assets available in this region – And there's some pretty nervous discord amongst governments unwilling to escalate an already volatile situation. The naval coalition represents a problematic political response to a difficult set of problems. The Houthis, meanwhile, have proven themselves to be very effective. For a marginal non-state actor, they have been able to exert an outsized influence on global economics and politics using pretty low-tech, cheap weapons. And that's because they understand what governments often struggle to – namely the fragility of global supply chains. The Houthis don't need to sink a container ship or a tanker to cause disruption. They've already achieved that. No government wants to see trade disrupted, obviously, but countries that have previously rallied to the support of the US have been shying away from direct involvement in Operation Prosperity Guardian. And the Red Sea is certainly not the only show in town right now in terms of naval priorities. Here's Sal Mercogliano, the renowned American maritime historian and professor. I think, again, we come back to the issue of of the Houthi being a a non-state actor, a very small player on the world stage. Again, these are, you know, a faction in a civil war. And yet they've been able to exert an undue influence on global economics, global politics by using very kind of, in some cases, low tech weapons and impacting both uh, the economics and uh, the politics of nations around the world in, in, in a way that we really haven't seen before in, 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 a, in a, a kind of a cost-benefit analysis. You know, they're, they're getting a lot on their return here uh, for this and really have raised an issue. And, and it's a hard argument to make that the, the, the Houthi are attacking innocent ships when their argument is, well, the Israelis are attacking innocent Palestinians. And, you know, we're not killing anyone, but the Israelis are. And it's making nations really want to back away in some ways. You know, you're, you're seeing countries that have before come to the rallying of the U.S., not coming so much. You know, Australia, because there are, there are other issues at play here. You've got other threats. You know, uh, you've got Pacific nations, and they're saying, well, we got to worry about South China Sea and China. You have Northern European nations going, we got this thing going on in the Baltic. We need to be concerned. And, and I, I really do think the threats are showing that it, it's very hard to cover all these kind of trade routes right now and, and how susceptible the global supply chain is 
to any sort of, of hazards, whether it's induced by the Houthi or it's natural because of low water on the Panama Canal or storms. Uh, we're definitely seeing it here. Uh, I, I joke all the time that a black swan event is supposed to be a rare event that has an undue influence. And I think since 2020, we've seen a flock of black swans coming in and, and just continually disrupting the chain. And I, I do think, too, the other element here is that governments don't have a good idea of how shipping works, particularly the U.S. government in many ways. They, they don't understand how international shipping works, the, uh, the intricacies of, about it. The, the companies now exert an influence far beyond being big economics. You know, if you look at Maersk, for example, you know, Maersk pulled the plug on going through the Suez on December 14th, and then December 24th, we're going back through, and then we're going back out again. And in many ways, commercial companies are driving this narrative almost as much as the uh, uh, the countries are. And to get it straight, that was great when they were sanctioning Russia, but now this is creating a, an undue problem. So I, I do think they don't understand the the the, the uh, governments don't understand the power of some of these corporations. That point that Sal makes about the need for an improved understanding between commercial shipping and navies is, of course, a very important point, and one that both sides are going to have to address once the immediate threats are under control. Yeah, I think the issue is more about political will than actually the military aspect. Uh, I think the U.S. Navy can deploy forces, they can rotate forces in, they can call upon the allies to do it. But I do think the, the concern I have is something is going to distract the U.S., to want to withdraw forces to go cover another area. If things heat up in Russia, Ukraine, if things heat up in the Baltic or, or in the Eastern Med, that carrier may have to leave. And, and that carrier provides a lot of assets into the area. Uh, I do think that the Houthi are really testing the ability of, of the naval vessels to counter this. You know, we don't know because the, the navies have been very quiet about this in the expenditure of weapons. What exactly are they using at, at the time to shoot this down? Are they using missiles to counter the drones? Are they using gunfire? Because there's a point when they start running low, you got to go replenish. You got to go down to Djibouti or to Diego Garcia or to Bahrain to go do that. And that could potentially leave gaps and, and holes in the defense. And when you play defense, it's very hard to ever win. You know, if you go back to use the Somali piracy, you know, analogy, which everyone loves to do. Somali piracy was defeated not on water, it was defeated on land. When Kenya and the American African Union went into Somalia and restabilized the situation, that's where it was. The U-boats in World War I, World War II were never defeated. They were out there to the very end. It was when the Germans surrendered and land was was one that you really have. It, you, can, you can minimize the threat, you minimize it, but the threat was never fully eliminated. We just learned to basically live with it at the end of the wars. And that's one of the problems we have to have is, is the naval forces are never going to create a 100% barrier to prevent a hit or attack on a, naval, on a commercial vessel. And that raises the doubt then, does this happen? We're already seeing what that kind of environment is up on the Black Sea with ships going to and from Ukraine, but those are bulkers, small bulkers, pretty low value coming in. This is the heart of the world trade going through this route. 
The big question, of course, is whether there is further escalation as the ripple effects of the Israel-Hamas war edge the Middle East deeper into a regional crisis. Until we know what the Houthi and perhaps more significantly the Iranian response is here, we're not going to be able to properly assess the implications of what happens next. But there is a lot that we do know already in terms of how this is going to affect and shape shipping markets over the next few days and a few weeks. The brunt of the disruption so far has of course been in the container sector where the majority of the larger box ships and almost all of the major lines are already rerouting and the disruption is unlikely to get any worse as a result of the latest developments. In the very likely event that this conflict drags on for months, we may have already seen the worst of the impact for container trades, or at least we're about to see it over the next couple of weeks. Yes, it'll take longer. Yes, it'll cost more. But it can be done. It can be planned. And once the diversions are stabilised, the consumer is probably unlikely to notice the difference in terms of costs overall. Here's Lars Jensen, the famed container analyst and chief executive of Vespucci Maritime. The, the implication or rather the ramification is much more disruptive right now in the short term than it's going to be in the long term. If we are in the unfortunate circumstances that this will drag on for months, we have already seen the worst of the impact, or, or at least we're about to see the next couple of weeks. The reason for that is once we've got stable networks running around Africa, yes, it will take longer. Yes, it will cost more, but it can be done. It can be planned. What we are faced with right now is a transition period. A lot of vessels got caught in the wrong place. If you are in the bottom of the Met and had to go around Africa, that is an enormous detour. We are having disruptive effects of empty containers not making it exactly in time for Chinese New Year. All of this causes more disruption right here, right now, than it will post-Chinese New Year. So basically, we are seeing the worst of the impact right now. Once we get into mid-February, this is going to get better. It's not going to be solved, obviously. It's still going to cost more, still going to take longer but it will not be as bad as what we're seeing right now. Now, that's partly, I guess, a question of timing and circumstance. We are in a very different market than the one that we were talking about when we were analysing the supply chain crisis post-pandemic, for example. But have we been busy learning the lessons of past crises? Are we better equipped in terms of supply chain resilience? Are we somehow better at dealing with this shock? Are we more resilient? I have my doubts. Uh, Let's look at this from two angles, one from the carrier, one from the shipper angle. From the carrier angle, we're more resilient simply because we have more capacity in excess than we had back with the ever given during the pandemic. Is that by design? No. Before this crisis, the talk of the town was, oh my God, now the carriers have created overcapacity again. Isn't that a big problem? Now we are seeing the flip side to overcapacity is resilience. That is what allows us to go around Africa. That's one part of it. So you can say, have the carriers learned a lesson? I think that's the wrong way to put it up because, again, the talk of the town was the carriers didn't learn a lesson. Now they created overcapacity again. But I could equally well say, yes, they did learn a lesson. Now they're more resilient. Only nobody wanted to pay for that resilience until right now when that resilience is needed. On the shipper side, talk of the town during the pandemic was Um, just-in-time logistics is dead. Now we're going to do just-in-case. Everybody learned their lesson. We need to build in buffers. Well, lo and behold, what happened in 2023? 
as the supply chains normalized, as prices came down, a lot more shippers, of course, reduced their lead time. Because what is lead time, what is just in case, that is cost on the bottom line. So now again, you have definitely not all, but you have some shippers in a little bit of a bind. Because if you went back to just in time, no, you might actually not get those goods in time for Valentine's, very specifically. Now, obviously, the long way round does have the rather advantageous effect of soaking up excess capacity for the lines. And as we've seen this week, Maersk chief executive Vincent Clerk has made no bones about it. It could take months to reopen the crucial Red Sea trading route, risking an economic and inflationary hit to the global economy and companies and consumers, he says. But are the lines going to sustain the diversions as long as possible to prop up the market? Well, no, no, they're not. Uh, that's something of an oversimplification. It, 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 it does absorb capacity. I do not see a realistic argument to be made that the carriers would deliberately do that this to boost profits. The moment it actually does de facto become sufficiently safe to go through Suez, somebody will start to do it. And then everybody will have to follow suit because Suez is a better product, it is faster, and it is lower operating costs. So, so this will only persist as long as the risk is actually there. I might agree with Musk's assessment that this does not have a short-term solution, though. Uh, in terms of the retailers, how is this going to impact them uh, long-term? Let's put things a little bit in perspective. Prior to the crisis, if we look at, say, Asia and North Europe, benchmark rates seem to be about $1,500 per 40-foot. That was already on a slight upwards trend. We've been all the way down to about 1000 which was extremely loss-making from the, for the carriers just a couple of months prior to that. Now, what I'm hearing in the market, at least this week, is there are a few cases now seemingly pushing above $6,000 per F. And sure, from $1,500 to $6,000, that is a massive increase. Let's compare that to some of the absolute highest benchmark rates in the pandemic. You were talking 16000 back then. So we are in a situation where, yes, rates have hiked dramatically compared to where we came from. Part of that rate hike had to happen anyhow because rates were non-compensatory. We are nowhere near the levels we saw during the pandemic. And very likely, this is the spike we're seeing right now after Chinese New Year. This will abate back down. Right now, it, it's anybody's guess exactly where is that going to land back down. But I would not be surprised leaning myself out a little bit here, saying we might see a stable level of, say, three dollars $4,000 compared to the 1500 we had pre-crisis, which is a lower than the spikes we're seeing right now. But I cannot see how this can be a disaster for most of the impact, for, for most of the importers, certainly not in the context of the disruptions we saw during the pandemic. And let's not forget that the Suez diversions are not the only restriction in play here. The climate-induced blockage at the Panama Canal has to be taken into consideration, into our analysis. Uh, only, only to a minor degree. Of course, it does have some impact because you had some carriers during November that rerouted some of their Panama services to Suez. Those ones now have to be further rerouted around Africa. That is longer. It will absorb some capacity. But in terms of magnitude compared to the capacity you need to serve Asia to Europe, this is a minor problem. What we could expect is even before this crisis, we could already expect in 2024 a shift in some of the East Coast volumes in the US to go to the West Coast, partly because of Panama, since they didn't want to go through Suez, partly over fears that the labor union agreement on the East Coast expires in September, 
which means we could have labor disruptions in the U.S. East Coast ports right smack in the middle of peak season in 24. Those factors in themselves would have caused some of the cargo to swing towards the U.S. West Coast. The current battle might swing some more towards the West Coast, but there's a limit as to how much more that is actually going to swing because anybody who could see a benefit in it might already have this uh, on the drawing board. So what are the other tipping points that we should be looking out for? I mean, obviously, the point at which the carriers feel that there is sufficient security to go back through the Red Sea, that's one factor. But as Lars points out here, it's not the only consideration that we need to be looking at in terms of our risk assessments. There are a couple of elements that potentially could turn out to be extremely important also in the longer term. Let's take the simple scenarios first, which we should hope doesn't happen. Uh, the flare-up we see now obviously impacts the Babel Mandeb Strait only. It's the Iranians at the end of the day that's behind part of this, which means the obvious escalation point from this would be an involvement of the Strait of Hormuz. From an oil perspective, that would be a disaster. But for container shipping, that would not be very good either because that would, to some degree, cut off the major transshipment hubs we have uh, around Dubai. That would also impact India to a significant degree. That would be extremely problematic. That is one way. Whether it escalates to that, I don't know. Let's hope not. News as of this morning, and here we're talking Thursday morning, is that there was a vessel that was hijacked in the Gulf of Oman, which is on the entry route actually to the Strait of Hormuz. Let's see where this goes. That is one part. Then there's another part that is sort of floating far beneath the surface, uh, and that could have much larger ramifications globally. It has been rumored that some carriers, and I think that is the wrong phrase, and have made deals with the Houthis to go through. I'm not sure deals would be the right word. But it's more a matter of you might have carriers that saying we are not going to serve Israel, so please don't shoot at our vessels. That's more the gist of it. There are, of course, two groups of carriers in that bucket. One part are carriers that never served Israel in the first place. I mean, if you're a local Middle Eastern operator, for example, that never served Israel, don't have any intentions to, you can say that with a straight face. And if that gives you a carte blanche by the Houthis to go by, so be it. The challenge here is if we increasingly see this spread to maybe some of the larger carriers, that will open up a completely different shape of container shipping going forward. Because what we are then beginning to witness is an opening of the world where if I was to be really provocative on this, and it's not one, two years, but say 10, 15 years down the line, the concept of a global carrier might not exist. Because if we have a ramp up in geopolitical tensions, also involving major countries like China, Taiwan, India, and the US, obviously, you might end up in a situation as a carrier, you're going to be unable to serve all countries at the same time. That might de facto be where the world could be heading if we see a ramp up of these geopolitical challenges. Now, in the interest of balance and accuracy, I, I should point out that we have approached all of the major carriers who have adamantly denied that this is the case in terms of them not going to Israel. But the wider point about this sort of bifurcation of global trade at the behest of global politics is clear. I mean, we've seen it with sanctions and the ability of shipping to engage in Russia. And to some extent, you've seen a division in the regions that shipping can now trade in. And what we're seeing unfold right now 
is that we are heading into a world with more local conflicts, and that is increasing the complexity of how shipping is able to operate. Up until this week, the impact on markets outside of the container sector has been relatively muted. We obviously saw high-profile statements from the likes of BP saying that they weren't going to risk it, but diversions in the tanker trades have been comparatively limited compared to containers. Since December 16th, only 27 tankers have diverted southbound in the Red Sea, 18 have diverted northbound. Here's David Vetch, chief economist at Vortexa, with the analysis of what's been happening in the tanker trades. Volume-wise, the biggest flow over the last year has become southbound transit of largely Russian oil, which is a mix of crude oil, fuel oil, and nafta. Um, the point here is, uh, while we're talking about uh, 2.8 million barrels per day, so it's quite some volumes, but the question is whether these vessels are really a threat, Yeah, both from if you want uh, a political uh, background, but also basically the operators of these vessels, they are anyway somehow, you know, not really operating in the tier one market and they have uh, different type of risk profiles. So this flow will be largely unaffected. Um, then there is a, a type of uh, smaller but not irrelevant flow. It hits again the U.S. market here. So we're talking about LNG and LPG flows from the U.S. These flows have already taken a hit uh, late last year with the Panama Canal uh, outages or issues with the, with the, with the water levels. So they had already to reroute, uh, through the Suez Canal to a certain extent, and they are now rerouting via the Cape of Good Hope. Um, the point here is that, uh, if you take a look at the route to Singapore, it's only about four days of extra travel and you save the canal costs, the Suez Canal costs, uh, to India, it's something like seven days extra time. So it has a bit of an impact, but I wouldn't consider it as particularly dramatic. From, um, uh, um, product perspective, I think the most interesting flows are diesel and jet caro volumes that are being transported from the Middle East and India to Europe. Uh, especially for these jet volumes, there is no alternative suppliers. Yeah, So there is a big short, which is Europe, and there is a big long, which is the wider Arabian Sea. So these vessels, uh, these, these cargoes have to flow. Uh, and if they take the route uh, across the Cape of Good Hope, it adds uh, something like two weeks extra travel time. So that's uh, quite significant. Um, so far, what we have seen is that the majority of these vessels, uh, cargoes, continues to go through the Red Sea. Uh, but we have seen six vessels that have diverted via the Cape of Good Hope um, and are now taking basically long into the European market. Uh, the, the, the market context here is basically for everything, yeah? whether we talk crude or LNG or LPG, but specifically also diesel and Chad Caro, is that markets are not strong at this point of time. Yeah? In spite of the winter season, if you look at pricing, uh, it's pretty moderate across the board. Um, one key observation we have made uh, over the second half last year, particularly Q4, is that um, the import demand for gasoline and diesel has been falling across the board globally every single month for both products. Uh, so that's a bit of a surprising development. Generally speaking, if we take an even a bigger perspective, uh, oil flows in total uh, have been on a declining trend uh, in the second half of last year, and we are still below the 2019 levels. So the challenge for the industry is not the amount of, uh, uh, of oil that is to be transported, but it's the long distances. Yeah? So the, the, the tanker industry has benefited from the rerouting of Russian barrels, uh, from the Panama Canal outage, and now they're basically type of, if you want, insulated uh, from the downside that we see in the cargo market by 
you know, again, some uh, longer travel routes uh, across the Cape, Cape of Good Hope. But we don't really have the issue that uh, anybody is desperately looking for a marginal diesel or jet carrier or crude or any other cargo. Now, I should point out that I was having this conversation with David on Thursday before the US and UK airstrikes, and obviously the situation is liable to change. We've seen several tankers start to reroute in the wake of the military action, and we know several operators who are putting a temporary pause on going anywhere near the danger hotspots. So what about the, that worst case scenario? Here's David again. Yeah, um, if, if, if we basically assume a type of blockade, then the question is always, can the flows be replaced by other flows? Yeah. So for example, for crude oil, we have both north and southbound flows. Yeah. And we have a global supply situation where Europe is basically taking about 1 million barrels per day of crude. Uh, from the Middle East via the Red Sea, uh, this could be replaced. Yeah? It could be replaced by West African U.S. crude supplies. So uh, in, in to a certain extent, such a situation could be coped with by a change of trade flows altogether. Uh, as I mentioned before, for Chad Caro, this is not possible. So the Chad Caro needs to go from the Middle East uh, and India to Europe. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if, if you want, uh, uh, if the pipeline is two weeks longer than it was before, it's only a temporary problem. Yeah? And uh, of course, you can then raise the question whether the tanker supply is sufficient. Uh, and in the middle of last year, there would have been questions about that because there was a, if the market looked to be very tight. But at this point of time, it's not looking that tight. And as long as that's uh, how to say this situation continues, um, the Red Sea um, concerns um, not particularly pronounced. And you can simply see that essentially in all type of pricing uh, indicators yeah, on, on the cargo side, on the, on the crude oil and refined product side. Okay, well, there is clearly more to come on this, but that's where I'm going to have to leave it for now. As I mentioned earlier, I'm going to have to direct you to loyslist.com for all of the latest news because this is, I'm afraid, a very fast-moving story. And I should also remind you that as I record this, we're only on day 12 of 2024. Here's hoping that things slow down a little at some point in the very, very near future. In the meantime, Stay safe out there, and we'll be back with you next week with more of the stories shaping shipping. Goodbye.